Tonight's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is God's word. In the Roman colonies, tax collectors were despised because they charged exorbitant amounts of money, way over what the imperial government was asking. Then they gave the imperial government their part and kept the difference, and the Roman military backed them up, and they didn't care how much they charged as long as they got their, their slice. And so everyone despised the tax collectors as collaborators and extortionists. And yet here we have Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, notice, probably the, the leader of a region or maybe even of the whole country, who finds salvation. That's what the whole passage is about, salvation. Now, let's ask this question. How do you get Jesus' salvation into your life, flowing through your life? That's a pretty basic question. Jesus says that's what he came to do. How do you get that salvation flowing through your life? And the answer of this text is three things have to happen. You have to climb up a tree, you have to get over the crowd, and you have to take Jesus home. Okay? All of the above. Now, you've got to do them all. You have to climb up a tree, you have to get over the crowd, and you have to take Jesus home. Can I close in prayer, or do you, is that totally... Or would you like me to elaborate? Okay, yeah. Climb up a tree. The first and biggest barrier we have... Uh, the first and biggest barrier between our hearts and receiving and experiencing Christ's salvation is our pride and our dignity. When Zacchaeus got up in a tree, he left his dignity behind. Now, that, even in our culture, even in our informal culture, I mean, if the mayor, you know, was standing over there watching a parade and all of a sudden the mayor decided to get into a tree to watch it and the New York Post took pictures of it, everybody would laugh at it and they would, even in our culture, to climb up in a tree is not dignified. But you have to keep in mind that in a, in a traditional culture, in a formal culture, uh, this is a wealthy man, it says. And there were all sorts of things that you, you did or you didn't do that were fitting with dignified social status. And when Zacchaeus, in that culture, climbed up in a tree, all commentators say when he climbed up in a tree, he paid an enormous price because that's something that a child could do, but an adult did not do it. That's something a child would do. When he climbed up in a tree, he paid an enormous price, the price of ridicule. He lost his dignity in order to see Jesus. Now, that's the way 
It still is. And it always will be. It takes different forms in every culture. It takes different forms in every century. But you cannot have Jesus' salvation flowing through your life unless you're willing to get up in a tree and look silly to yourself and to many, many other people. You have to swallow your pride. You have to be willing to not stand on your dignity. And in this case, you have to look like a child. Now, how does that work out in our culture? There's a very interesting example of this that's come up in the last couple of weeks. Uh, The Narnia movie comes out on Friday, and it's based on, uh, it's not just based on, I saw it two weeks ago in its entirety, and it's an extremely faithful uh, following of uh, C.S. Lewis's children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. There's seven of them. Uh, Now, even though the movie evidently uh, is getting a lot of ecstatic critical reviews, the books themselves for the last month or so have been under attack by the elite periodicals of New York, New Yorker, uh, the uh, New York Times Magazine. And uh, there have been some, uh, because C.S. Lewis is not very popular among, in our culture. And uh, one of the, for example, one of the things that's been attacked about the Narnia stories is what happens to Susan. There's four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And at the end of the seven books, Susan doesn't go to heaven with the rest. She loses out on salvation, at least temporarily. And the reason given in the seventh book really has freaked out and upset many of the critics. Uh, So, for example, Charles McGrath in uh, New York Times Magazine, just like a week or two ago, wrote this. He said, Then there's the unfortunate business with Susan, the second oldest of the Pevensies, who near the end of the last volume is denied salvation merely because, as the text tells us, quote, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She was always a jolly sight too keen on being grown up, unquote. And so McGrath goes on and says, in other words, Susan is denied salvation simply because she's reached puberty. In other words, because she's become sexual. And critic Philip Pullman, also criticized the Narnia Chronicles, says, uh, this shows, he says, that C.S. Lewis, A, didn't like women in general, and B, didn't like sex at all. You see, the idea that Susan, when she grows up and likes nylons and lipstick, you remember what nylons are? And nylons and lipstick and and, uh, and invitations. And so because she's reached puberty and she becomes sexual, you know, she misses salvation. Obviously, C.S. Lewis is a misogynist and a Puritan. And that's completely missing Lewis's point that he's making with Susan. Because it also says in the book why Susan isn't a friend of Narnia anymore is because she, used to, she just laughs at the kids and says, fancy you still play those stories in your head that we played as children. C.S. Lewis believes that Susan made the mistake that he made for many, many years and that many people in our Western society make, and that is we believe that to grow up, you can't believe in the supernatural anymore. To stop being a child, you can't believe in the supernatural anymore. Now think, for example, when you're a child, you read fairy tales, and they enthrall us, and they fill our heart with wonder. Do you know why? Because the fairy tales tell us that this world is not all there is. This physical world is not all there is, that there's a supernatural world beyond it. And, uh, and, and there are supernatural forces of good, and there are supernatural forces of evil, and we can be part of that drama. And there are other worlds where people fly, or people live forever, or people rule and reign, and everyone wears a crown. And there are other worlds that sometimes you can get into, and sometimes people, forces and beings from there can come here. 
And you can be part of all that, and it's so exciting. But then in our society, at some point, we say to children, time to grow up. Time to put away childish things. And here's what we tell children in our society. Hey, there is no supernatural. This world is all there is. Uh, you just, you're here by accident. You're just the random product of natural selection and survival of the fittest. And when you die, you're just going to rot. And there is no supernatural good and supernatural evil because good and evil are just social constructs. They're just relative. And nobody really knows who's to say what is good. And if you still believe in God and you still believe in devil and demons and angels, you are a child. You are a, an intellectual primitive. And it's time to put away childish things. And that is the case in a place like New York still, in so much of Western society. We tell children, you can't grow up unless you stop believing in the supernatural. We t in other words, in our society, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to believe that the Lord of the universe from another world broke into this world and was born in a manger and defeated the powers of evil and death and rose triumphant over the grave, if you believe that here, intellectually, you're beyond the pale. You're not considered an enlightened, mature adult. You're considered a primitive. You're considered a child. You've climbed a tree. You look silly. You looked undignified. What are we going to say to that? Hmm? What do we say to our culture that says, you can't still believe in Christianity. You're still a child. Well, here's a couple things we can say. Number one, we can say that Jesus himself said, that's right. You have to be like a child. You're just going to have to get over that. Jesus actually took a child out once, remember? And he set the child down and says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're as humble as a child, unless you know you need a savior, unless you're as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says you do have to get rid of your dignity. You do have to be willing to look childish. You do have to climb the tree. The other thing we can say to our culture is there's a lot of interesting people up in that tree with us. Oh, yeah. Let me give you just two, just, just two. One of them is Martin Luther King, Jr. When he received the Nobel Prize for Peace, the Nobel Peace Prize, this is what he said in his acceptance speech. He said, I refuse to believe the idea that we are mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life, unable to respond to the eternal oughtness that forever confronts us. You know what he's saying? He says, I reject the idea that this world is all there is. They were just evolved accidentally. That good and evil is just a matter of opinion. I reject that, he says. I believe that there's an eternal world, and that's what he says here and also other places in his writing. I believe there's an eternal world out there beyond this world by which we know that certain laws in this world are unjust. Injustice is not a matter of opinion. Good and evil are not just matters of opinion. They're not all relative. Martin Luther King, Jr. Another person up in the tree with us, just got up there fairly recently, evidently, and very surprising to many people, is Anne Rice, who wrote Interview with a Vampire. She wrote Interview with a Vampire, and she, a uh, very famous writer, and very popular amongst urban cultural creatives in a place like New York, and therefore they were all sort of shocked and put out when they found out that she had become an Orthodox Christian. And in Charlie Rose, she was on Charlie Rose, and Charlie Rose asked her, why in the world did you become a Christian? And you know what she said? She said, I read N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and I realized the resurrection really happened. That someone from another world broke into this world. It really, really happened. Now, these are people 
who believe there are other worlds. And the reason that Susan, at the end, doesn't seem to make it is the reason why C.S. Lewis is a mistake C.S. Lewis had made for many years. And you know what Lewis says? He writes about it like this. He says, as an adolescent, I would have been ashamed to have been found reading fairy tales. See, when you become a teenager or so, you're told you can't read fairy tales. You can't believe in witches and other worlds, and you can't believe in all that sort of thing. He says, as an adolescent, I would have been ashamed to have been found reading fairy tales. Now that I am 50, I read them in public. For when I became a man, I put away childish things, especially the fear of childishness. See, in other words, there's nothing more childish than to feel like, I don't want to look childish. I've got to be grown up. And that is the main spiritual mistake. Or let me, let me summarize this here. When you're a child, your heart's filled with wonder as you read fairy tales. And when you grow up, you do need something beyond fairy tales. And here's what it is. It's called the gospel. Because you know what the gospel says? The gospel says there is a supernatural world. There is an evil prince, an evil sorcerer, and we're all under his enchantment. But a hero from another world has broken into this world and redeemed us with his sacrificial love. And this sacrificial love uh, redeems us from the curse of the evil one. Just like all the stories say, it just sounds like all the other stories, Harry Potter's mother's sacrificial love makes it possible for him to be redeemed from Voldemort. And Aslan's sacrificial love for Edmund is the deeper magic before the dawn of time that the white witch doesn't know about. Oh, you say, that's nice. The gospel story of Jesus is just another wonderful story, all pointing to these wonderful realities. No. Jesus is not one more story pointing to these underlying realities. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. In other words, the gospel is about supernatural. And it does talk about another world where people live forever and everyone wears crowns. And it does talk about a hole being opened, an opening between our world and that world that's going to redeem us. But it's true. It's not just a fairy tale. It's true. And if you believe that, it'll fill your heart with childlike wonder for the rest of your days. You don't have to give up the childlike wonder if you believe the gospel. Yeah, you have to get up in a tree. Yeah, you have to look stupid to everybody else. But you don't get jaded. You don't think like, I've got I've to I've stop being, believing. I've got to stop the wonder in my heart in order to grow up. You don't have to. At the end of uh, the movie Hook, not, it's not the end, it's the middle of the movie, somewhere in the movie Hook, which is about Peter Pan and the Lost Boys growing up and coming back you know, to this world. There's one place where Tootles, who was one of the Lost Boys in Never Neverland, says to the police constable, I've forgotten how to fly. And the police constable says, one does. But the gospel says, one doesn't have to. You can keep that childlike wonder the rest of your life if you believe the gospel. Are you willing to get up in the tree? If you are, you can be like that the rest of your life. So first of all, if you, you have to get up in a tree, all right? So first of all, climb up a tree. Secondly, you have to get over the crowd. Now, what I really like about this account is the main thing that is keeping Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus is what? The crowd. And it's a nasty, self-righteous, moralistic crowd. See in verse 7? It looks down at Zacchaeus and says, you sinner. Now, what's that? here's what's so helpful about that. I think the number one thing that keeps us from embracing 
the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe in Christianity is our pride. We don't want to look like a child. We don't want to climb a tree. We, don't want, to, we want to stand on our dignity. But the second biggest problem people have with Christianity in this world today are moralistic, self-righteous, religious people. We can't get past the crowd. There are so many people in this world like this who use the word sinner in an exclusive, abusive, oppressive way. And they beat people up with it. And they look down at everyone else who doesn't have their beliefs and their practices. And there are so many people in churches like this. And there is so much evidence of this in the history of the church. And there are so many people professing to be Christians like this that there are so, there are so many people just have given up on Christianity because of it. They can't get past the crowd. I think so many folks I have met don't believe Christianity for a kind of visceral reasoning. And the visceral reason goes like this. If Christianity was true, it couldn't produce people like this. But it seems like it is producing people like this. Therefore, Christianity can't be true. But you know what? You need to do something that Zacchaeus did. How did Zacchaeus get over this barrier? He found a way to look at Jesus apart from the crowd. Not only didn't he let the crowd keep him from seeing Jesus, but he didn't even try to see Jesus through the crowd. He found a vantage point by which he could get over the crowd and he could uh, get past the crowd and see Jesus direct. Now, it's kind of sad that I have to say this as a minister, but I must say this. Uh, you, you have got to get past the self-righteousness of so many professing Christians. You have got to get past the hypocrisy and the inconsistency of so many people in the church now and over the centuries. You've got to get past it. You can't do what, you, you, you've got to do what Zacchaeus did, and that is to say, I'm going to find out who Jesus really is. I'm not going to be affected by, by all the inconsistencies of the people who say they're his followers. I'm going to see who Jesus really is. And you say, well, how in the world do you do that? You've got to go right to the text. You've got to go right to the passages and see what he's really like. Are you willing to do that discipline? Are you willing to? Because if you do, you know what you're going to find? It's going to smack you on almost every page of the text. You're going to find that Jesus Christ is as turned off to religious and moral people as you are. He is every bit as down on the religious, self-righteous, moralistic crowd as you are. Every bit. It's almost on every page. Whenever you see Jesus talking to unbelievers and prostitutes and, and tax collectors and sinners, he's gentle with them. Even when he's trying to get them to change, he's gentle, he's kind, you know, he's, he's open to them. The only place that Jesus ever thunders, the only place that Jesus ever denounces, the only place that ever Jesus ever yells is with Bible teachers and religious leaders. You know, in Matthew 21, he actually says to them, he says, the pimps and the prostitutes get into the kingdom of God before you. Wow. Every page, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what it's really about? He says, the religious leaders and the Bible teachers give to the poor like this, but I want you to give to the poor like this. The religious leaders and the Bible teachers uh, pray like this. I want you to pray like this. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to understand the difference between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious teachers and the Bible teachers, and what the gospel is really about. There's a place where Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. It'll be better on Judgment Day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Do you know what he's saying? 
Bethsaida and Chorazin were nice little towns where everybody subscribed to the biblical law. And, of course, we all know about Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. He says, woe to you, little towns with white picket fences and where all the churches are full. It's going to be better on Judgment Day for the red light districts of the megacities than it will be for you. Jesus was so, so, so down on the self-righteousness, the moralism, the pride. It'll smack you on every page. He's every bit as much down on the crowd that keeps you from Jesus as you are. So why are you going to let the crowd keep you from him? Every place there's a choice. Luke chapter 7, a woman of the streets and a religious leader. Luke chapter 10, a Samaritan, you know, the racial outsider, and a Levite. Luke chapter 15, the elder brother, the good boy, and the younger brother, you know, out sleeping with prostitutes. Here, a collaborator, an extortionist, and this very righteous crowd who does everything according to the, uh, the biblical laws. Every place Jesus has a choice. And there's a sexual outsider, a moral outsider, a religious outsider. Jesus always says to the outsider, I want to come home with you. I want to come into your life. Why? Because religion is, I'm good enough and I can reach up to God. But the gospel is, Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which is lost. That the Lord God comes down to us and he saves us by sheer grace. And it's the outsiders who are much faster to understand that. And it's the insiders who feel like, I'm pretty good and I don't need a savior. I basically am just asking God for what is my rights. Do not get it. How can you possibly as so many people in New York are, how, how dare you let the moralistic, self-righteous people that have, that have turned you off and in many cases hurt you keep you from Jesus, keep you from Christianity, when Jesus is as turned off to them as you are? And don't you, don't you realize that to be that mad at self-righteous people takes a certain amount of self-righteousness? To be that mad at hypocrites, people who are inconsistent, come on, every one of us is to some degree, hypocritical and inconsistent. To, to, to be that self-righteous about self-righteous people is, is wrong. It is a form of inconsistency. Get over the crowd. Find a way to see Jesus directly, and you will see who he really is. The one whom the moral majority of this time rejected says, I want to come into your life. So number one, you've got to climb up a tree. Number two, you've got to get over the crowd. And number three, if you want the salvation of Jesus Christ to flow into your life, you've got to take Jesus home. <laughs> the third thing Jesus says is not believe in me or accept me or whatever. What does he say? When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I'm coming home with you. When he says, I want to stay at your house, verse 5, when Zacchaeus said, it says he welcomed Jesus, verse 6, and when in verse 7, all the people saw this, they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. The word guest, the word welcome, the word um, stay, all mean room and board. It means that Jesus came and lived with Zacchaeus for a while and stayed overnight and ate there. When he says, I'm coming home with you, that teaches us something. And it's the third thing, it's very important to see. If you want God's Jesus' salvation, you've got to see this. What does this get us across. It gets across two things. First of all, it gets across the order of grace. Do you see what the order is here? Does Zacchaeus say, I'm going to stop cheating people? And then Jesus says, oh, okay, now I'll come home with you. Is that what happens? Class? No. Jesus says, I'm coming home with you. 
Zacchaeus hasn't even repented. In fact, you know, the evangelical thing is you ask, Zacchaeus should have invited Jesus into his life. Guess what? Jesus invited himself into his life. Jesus does not say, well, now, if you clean your life up and if you stop cheating, I'll come live with you. He says, I'm coming to live with you. And Zacchaeus says, good, then I'll stop cheating. What's going on here? I love this. Jesus says, in spite of your sin, I want to be with you. In spite of your record. See, Jesus is not the Wizard of Oz. Jesus does not say, bring me the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West and I will give you an audience. He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says, in spite of your flaws, in spite of your record, in spite of your collaboration, in spite of your extortion, just on the knowledge that you might repent, I'm coming to spend time with you. I'm giving you myself now. And in response, look, joy, verse 6. And you know what I really like? When he says, I'm going to stop cheating people, what he says, he says, look, Lord, I love that. What does that mean? Do you see the emotion in that? Look, Lord. That's like, look, Daddy. In other words, it's because of the grace, because of the gratitude. It's gone through Zacchaeus like a lightning bolt. Zacchaeus says, because you love me, I want to change. It's not like, because I change, now you love me. The love of Jesus Christ is not the basis for the change. The love of Jesus Christ is the dynamic for the change. The change is the result of the love. It's not, it's, not, it's, it's not what merits the love at all. Jesus does not say when, when, um, when Zacchaeus says, oh, I'm going to give away half of everything to the poor and I'm going to st- pay everybody back that I've cheated. Jesus does not say, now salvation will come to you. He says, no, this is a sign that salvation has come. Salvation first, then the change. But secondly, this tells us grace will always really change you. The reason why these people are so aghast that Jesus is willing to go and eat with Zacchaeus is because in those days, to go home and eat with somebody really meant something very important. It meant to participate with that person's life, completely participate. In other words, they saw him as being willing to participate with this sinner. In those days, the evening meal was the center of family life. The long evening meal, you know, there was no electric lights. Nothing happened after you ate. You, you know, you lit the torches and you lit the lamps and you ate all evening and then you went to bed. And it was the heart of the family uh, life. And to invite somebody into that meal was to ask not only for intimacy, but to bring a person into the very warp and woof of the daily rhythms of the family's life. Now, Jesus says, if you want my salvation, you don't just meet me on Sunday. I want to come into the very warp and woof of your life. I want every single nook and cranny of your life to be affected by my grace. That's exactly what happens here. The creative creative shaping of Zacchaeus' life because of the gospel happens right here. Notice, he says, for example, the Bible says you've got to give away 10% of your income to charity. Zacchaeus says 50%. The Bible says you have to pay back what you've, when you've cheated somebody the, the amount you cheated plus 20%. That's in Numbers chapter uh, 5. But Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give back 400%. Zacchaeus is not just doing what's required. He is responding to grace, and he's doing it creatively. You know why? He's rich. A tithe for a poor or middle-class person can be a sacrifice, but let's face it, for a rich person, it's no sacrifice. So he has just decided, I'm going to do 50%. Why? Is there a rule somewhere? No. The gospel has sent him on an adventure. 
And he's begun to think out the implications of the gospel. And Jesus Christ, when he says in Revelation chapter 3.20, I stand at the door and knock, open up, I will come in, and I will eat with you. You know that place? What does that eat thing mean? He says, he's not just saying, I just want you to believe in me. I want to come into the warp and woof of the daily rhythms of your life, and I want you to work out the implications of the gospel into every nook and cranny. I want everything to change, everything. The way you spend your money, the way your thought life, your sex life, your family life, your vocation, the jobs you take, the jobs you turn down, everything has to be affected by the gospel. And by the way, you know, that Revelation 3.20 where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open to me, I will come in and I will eat with him. That's not, by the way, to non-Christians. You know, that's not said there to non-Christians. Revelation chapter 3 is written to the church. And what does that mean? If you want the salvation of Jesus Christ flowing through your life, you've got to not just see him on Sunday. You've got to bring him in to the very center of your life and give him access to every single part of your life. Have you? No. I know you haven't. I haven't. There are parts of, there's parts of our lives that need, we need to take Jesus there. How can Jesus do this? How can he look at us outsiders and say, I'm coming home with you? Because though he was the ultimate insider, hmm? inside the Trinity, that's about as inside as you get. Inside heaven, that's about as inside you get. In the bosom of the Father, that's about as inside you get, as you get. But he came to earth, and he was born in a manger, and on the cross he was forsaken by his Father, and the ultimate insider became the outsider and took our penalty upon himself so now he can look at us no matter what we are, no matter what we've done, and say, I want to come home with you. And if you climb a tree, and if you get over the crowd, And if you take Jesus home, his salvation can flow through your life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would show us how we now can work Jesus' salvation more and more into every nook and cranny of our lives. That's one of the reasons why we partake of the supper. You're eating with us. And by faith and by your spirit now, work your salvation more deeply into our lives so that our lives can reflect the character, uh, the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.